This evening we're going to be considering faith and fear. Faith and fear. And we're looking at the whole of Genesis chapter 15, verse 1 through to verse 21. It's already been seen in Genesis chapter 14 that Abraham went to the rescue of his nephew Lot, who had been taken captive by a confederacy of four kings, four Babylonian kings, after they defeated five Canaanite kings, which included the king of Sodom. Sodom being where Lot and his family were living at the time. Abraham, who was over 75 years of age by then, armed 318 of his trained servants and they struck the four kings having pursued them for about 117 miles up to Dan in the north of Canaan after which they closed in on the four kings from different directions. Abraham rescued Lot and his goods and the women also and the people. The victory of Abraham and his armed servants over no less than four kings, was without doubt given to him by the Lord. That was confirmed to be the case by another king, whose name was Melchizedek. Melchizedek was not of the five, nor was he of the four. He was the king of Salem, which means king of peace, and he was the priest of the Most High God. Also, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. He came to Abraham after the battle, after Abraham had defeated the four kings, and he blessed him. Also, he confirmed to Abraham that God had delivered his enemies into his hand. It was also seen that Melchizedek was a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. As it is written in Psalm 110 verse 4, The Lord hath sworn and will not repent, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The New Testament confirms that those words in Psalm 110 and verse 4 apply to the Lord Jesus Christ who has obtained reconciliation and peace with God for all who are trusting in him as their saviour from sin, and he is their righteousness. The king of righteousness is the righteousness for all who are trusting in him, in the Lord Jesus Christ. They stand before God, a holy and righteous God, accepted in the beloved Son, in Jesus. They are washed in his blood, and they are clothed in his righteousness. Last of all, in chapter 14... It was seen that Abraham received a visit from the king of Sodom, one of the five kings who had been defeated by the four. He received a visit by the king of Sodom who wanted him to help himself to the spoils of war. He was obviously very um, thankful to Abraham for intervening as he did. He wanted Abraham to take the spoils of war, but Abraham took nothing except what his men had eaten. He told the king that he had made a vow to the Lord to take nothing, lest he be accused of becoming rich through the generosity of the king of Sodom. That's quite a big recap, but I wanted to remind you of the victory that the Lord gave Abraham in battle, 
not forgetting Abraham's boldness and his strategic mind in warfare. You can see it all in chapter 14 there. And his focus on God, which was evident in his vow to the Lord, not to take anything, any of the spoils of war. Now we'll have a look at chapter 15, or at least certain verses of chapter 15 of Genesis. Looking at verse 1 there. After these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abraham in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abraham, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. You would have thought that Abraham would have been far too busy celebrating the victory that the Lord had given him to have any thoughts in his mind of being fearful. How could he entertain any idea of being fearful after that victory that he had experienced? But clearly he was fearful. Otherwise, why else would the Lord say to him, or the word of the Lord that came to him, why would the Lord say, Fear not, Abraham. Why Abraham was afraid at that time, we're not told. The commentators, they would suggest various reasons why he was uh, fearful. It, it, For example, it's been suggested that perhaps he feared reprisals from the other four kings. That sounds reasonable. Whatever the reason was, his fear was real. And that is despite numerous exhortations in the word of God to fear not. If you have faith in God, you're not to fear men. What can men do to you? And that's exactly what David said in Psalm 56 verse 11. When David was amongst the Philistines and he said, In God have I put my trust. I will not be afraid what man can do unto me. Now, when you think about it, what David said there was said, over, well, about a thousand years after Abraham lived. So, Abraham never saw those words of David, but he didn't really need to, did he? The sentiment of those words, fear not, what can man do to me, applies. It's timeless. It applies throughout all ages, if you have faith in the one true God. The very idea of a child of God being afraid of anything that man can do to him, quite frankly, it's ridiculous. The only one who is worthy to be feared is God, no one else. The ungodly have every reason to fear God. I'm not saying they do fear God. I'm not saying the people who wave their puny fists towards heaven fear God. I'm not saying that the people who use the name of Jesus as a swear word fear God. I'm not saying that the people who enact ungodly laws fear God, but they ought to fear God. They really ought to when you consider that God is a consuming fire. And on the day of judgment, all who do not know the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom he have sent, will be cast into the lake of fire. And even those who are who are his children, Christians in other words, having been washed in the blood of Jesus 
and clothed in the righteousness of Jesus are to fear God with a reverential fear which sits perfectly well alongside a saving faith in the believer's heart. As it is written in Psalm 89 and verse 7, God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be had in reverence of all them that are about him. Do you, Dear Christian, do you fear God? Do you have that attitude of heart where you bow prostrate on your belly in the presence of God? Secondly, the Lord was Abraham's shield. Look at the kind and beautiful words that the Lord, the word of the Lord rather, said to fearful Abraham. Again, we'll look at verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abraham in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abraham, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. Fear not, Abraham, I am thy shield. Obviously, a shield offers protection to the body from arrows and other projectiles. When the Lord said, Fear not, Abraham, I am thy shield, was he giving Abraham an assurance that he would protect him from earthly enemies and that he would preserve him? Well, I would say in Abraham's case, absolutely. Why would that be? Because Abraham had received promise a promise from the Lord that all families of the earth would be blessed in him and his seed. As yet, Abraham and his wife Sarai, they had no children. So it made sense that the Lord would indeed preserve Abraham. He would protect him. He would preserve him. Abraham and his wife Sarai would have to have to live at least long enough to produce a child. The Lord had already shown himself to be not only Abraham's shield, but Sarai's shield as well, when they sojourned in, in Egypt during a time of famine in the land of Canaan. And clearly, when you look at chapter 14, well, we know that, um, not in 14, uh, when, when that was, that the Lord preserved them, he protected them. But there's much more to it than that. Just like you, if you've trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ as your saviour from sin, Abraham had the hope of heavenly glory. And that was despite him being afraid. As a stranger and a pilgrim in the world, he looked for a city which had foundations, whose builder and maker is God. In other words, he was looking Onwards, he was looking upwards to the heavenly Jerusalem. Isn't that the same as you, dear Christian? Or as Paul might say, are you, would, Paul was willing to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. And what about you? Would you rather be present with the Lord? Absent from the body, present with the Lord. Are you looking onwards and upwards and are you looking for that day when finally you get to be with your Saviour and you behold his beauty, his glory, his majesty? In the meantime, the Lord your God is your shield. 
in this exceedingly wicked world, giving you protection from Satan's fiery darts of temptation that are fired from without. Wherever you go in this world, there's temptation, isn't there? And those darts are coming from all directions, in various ways, some more subtle than others. But also, you look to the Lord to be your shield and to protect you from the fiery darts that are fired from within. Every time you have an ungodly or even blasphemous thought, or when you are tempted to dishonour the Lord in the things that you say and the things that you do. In Psalm 103, verse 4, David was speaking within himself, and he said, Bless the Lord, O my soul, who redeemeth thy life from destruction, who crowneth thee with loving kindness and tender mercies. Now, that word crowneth, when David said, who crowneth thee, speaking to his soul, who crowneth thee with loving kindness and tender mercies, crowneth means to surround. That is the kind of shield that the Lord is to his people. He doesn't just offer protection to the front. He surrounds you with his protection. He surrounds you with loving kindness and tender mercies. As Jesus, the good shepherd, said of his sheep, My sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. Can you imagine that, being in the hand of Jesus? My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. It's reasonable to say that a person who is surrounded by the mighty hand of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and surrounded by the hand of God the Father, is safe, he is doubly safe, now and forevermore. Yet still, we can so easily become afraid, just as Abraham became afraid. And the Lord said to him, Fear not, Abraham, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. Thirdly, the Lord was Abraham's exceeding great reward. We see that in verse 1. Again, we must be mindful that Abraham and his men had just triumphed in battle over four kings. Also, as was seen in chapter 13 and verse 2, he was very rich in cattle, in silver and in gold. The world might well ask, what more could anyone ask for if they are if they if they're successful and they have earthly riches what else can you ask for for many the answer would be perhaps even more success and even more riches but that was not so with abraham when the king of sodom offered to reward him after his battle he declined to take anything He was storing up treasures in heaven. And now in verse 1 of chapter 15, the Lord assured Abraham that he was his exceeding great reward. Note that the Lord God was not just Abraham's or Abraham's rewarder. 
He was his reward and an exceeding great reward at that. What more could anyone ask for? In Psalm 23, David said, My cup runneth over, or my cup overflows. That speaks of the grace of God towards his people. He fills them to overflowing with grace. So much so that if you belong to Jesus, you don't just have one or two blessings from heaven above, you have every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, your Lord and Saviour. Starting with the blessing of forgiveness of all your iniquities. Also, your life has been delivered from destruction. You have everlasting life. But most of all, you have Jesus and he is your exceeding great reward. What more could you ask for when you've got Jesus? You store up treasures in heaven, but surely the greatest treasure of all in heaven is your great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Do I hear an amen to that? Fourthly, the promise of the Lord was repeated. Even though the Lord had declared himself to be Abraham's exceeding great reward, he, that's Abraham and his wife Sarai, had no seed. They were without a child, yet the blessings that were promised by the Lord to Abraham were to be seen in his seed. With that in mind, Abraham said in chapter 15, verses 2 and 3, Lord God, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless? And the steward of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus. And Abraham said, Behold, to me thou hast given no seed, and lo, one born in my house is mine heir. In response to Abraham's question, the Lord directed his gaze to the sky, and the Lord said to him, Tell or count the stars if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. In verse 8, Abraham said, Lord God, whereby shall I know that I shall inherit it? By saying those words, he was asking for a sign concerning the promise of God. It's not that he didn't believe God. He did believe God. That's very clear. Just look at verse 6, where concerning Abraham, it says, he, he believed in the Lord. And he counted to him for righteousness. So Abraham did believe the Lord and that was his righteousness. But even so, we see in verse 8 there, whereby shall I know that I shall inherit it? The land of promise. So we see with Abraham, it is possible to believe the Lord and still seek further assurance or further explanation. Perhaps you've been there. Let's just consider Zacharias, the priest in uh, in Luke's Gospel. We considered him on Sunday morning some weeks back now. Zacharias, the priest, when he was told by the angel Gabriel that he and his wife Elizabeth would have a son, namely John the Baptist, Zacharias said, Whereby shall I know this? 
For I am an old man, and my my wife well-stricken in years. The problem is, when Zacharias asked that, he was asking in unbelief. He did not believe that he and his wife would indeed have a son. And he was struck dumb until the birth of his son, John the Baptist. Whereas the Virgin Mary, when she was told by the angel that she would conceive and that she would bring forth a son and that she would call his name Jesus, she asked, how shall this be, seeing I know not a man? However, like Abraham and unlike Zacharias the priest, she believed. So you can ask questions, you can ask for reassurance, because you, but you really do believe. The Lord knows the heart. And you can ask his question because you simply don't take God at his word. And you don't believe. An assurance was given to Abraham concerning the promise of God. And that's our next point. I'm not going to read it all again to you, but in verses 9 to 17, details are given of the Lord giving a sign to Abraham of the certainty of his promise, after which it is written in verses 18 through to 21, In the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land from the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites and the Kenizzites and the Cadmonites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Raphaims rather and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Girgashites and the Jebusites. All those Canaanite nations would be given to him. What happened was that various animals were cut in half and laid upon the ground with the halves positioned side by side. The Lord then told Abraham that his seed, that is his physical descendants, would fill the promised land of Canaan after 400 years of affliction in Egypt. We see that in the preceding verses, that they would have affliction for 400 years in verse 13. As for Egypt, that kingdom would be judged. We know that from the book of Exodus, that Egypt was plagued with various plagues culminating in the death of the firstborn, including the firstborn of Pharaoh. Whereas the descendants of Abraham, the Israelites, they departed from that land and they departed with great riches. Again, look at verse 14. We may as well just look at that. Also that nation whom they shall serve, will I judge and afterward shall they come out with great substance. And that's precisely what happened when the Israelites were delivered by the Lord out of their afflictions in Egypt. They came out with great substance. Apparently, the custom of men in Abraham's time was to seal a covenant or contract with both parties passing between separated animals. However, as can be seen in verse 17... A burning lamp passed between the pieces, signifying that God alone made the covenant or the contract. Abraham's part in all of that was faithful obedience. It was a one-sided contract, if you like. 
by, made by God. By way of application, as has already been said, and will no doubt be said again in the weeks to come, if the Lord Jesus Christ tarries, the promise to Abraham not only had a fulfilment in Israel of old, taking possession of Canaan, having been delivered out of their affliction in Egypt, ultimately, that promise has an ongoing spiritual fulfilment in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is declared to be Abraham's seed in the New Testament. In Galatians chapter 3 and verse 16, the Apostle Paul said, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. Then concerning all who are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul went on to say, For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptised into Christ have put on Christ. That would be interesting, wouldn't it, with our morning's considerations. As many of you as have been baptised into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ's, then are ye Abraham's seeds and heirs according to the promise. What all of that means for you if you have been baptised into Christ and have put on Christ is that you are Abraham's seed and you are an heir of God and a joint heir with Christ according to the promise of God that was given to Abraham all those years ago, 4,000 years ago. You have the faith that Abraham had. He believed and the Lord counted it to him for righteousness. The same applies to you. You believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and that is counted to you for righteousness. Jesus is your righteousness. And you have the righteousness of the the God who loved you and who gave himself for you. Finally, I I must tell you a story that you've heard many times before, but um, bear with me. Let's have a look at this again. Um, Yeah, look at verse 5. The word of the Lord, the word of the Lord brought him forth abroad, brought Abraham forth abroad and said, look now toward heaven and count the stars if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, so shall thy seed be. Now we know from Paul in Galatians, that seed is Jesus. But if we are, if we belong to Jesus, if we're baptised into Christ, then we are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. That always reminds me, every time I look at that, it reminds me of when my dear wife and I We're in the middle of the desert, in the middle of nowhere in India, the Rajasthan Desert, on a camel trek. And at the end of the day, it was boiling hot during the day and then at night time it got cold. And uh, the day was spent and we settled down to sleep for the night. We laid down on the desert floor with others. We weren't the only ones. There was a small party of people. 
And the, the people who were leading the camels, they took the big thick blankets off the backs of the camels that had been on the camels' backs all day long and us sitting on top of them, those camels. Anyway, they took those blankets off the camels and threw them on top of us. And uh, so we had a big, uh, a big smelly blanket to keep us warm for the night. But the thing is, I was just laying there on the desert floor looking up into the sky and that still ranked. I mean, we're talking about, uh, oh dear, uh, maybe 25 years ago now, something like that, I can't remember. A long time ago anyway. And that was one of the most spectacular sights I've seen in my life. And I I would guess that my wife would say the same thing. It was amazing, the stars everywhere. If you want to see stars in the sky, I suggest you go into the middle of the desert and uh, and look up in the sky at night there. Stars everywhere. And what did the Lord do? He brought Abraham forth abroad and said, Look now towards heaven and tell the stars if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. And it reminded me, even then, all those years ago, I looked at those stars in the sky and I was a, I, I knew that verse already then um, from Genesis chapter 15. And I was, that just, it's wonderful. Praise God for this. When you can look at something spectacular like that and then your focus is on God and his promise and his goodness towards people like us, undeserving sinners, hell-deserving sinners, to look up at the stars in the sky, so shall thy seed be. Wow. It was amazing. It was amazing then. It's amazing when I think about it now. And to look up at those stars in the sky and think that, that, well, you, you might say that each of those stars represents a name that is written in heaven. You know, in the Gospels, Jesus said to his disciples, don't rejoice because you you cast out evil spirits and you do this, that and the other. Rejoice, because your names are written in heaven. And so you look up at those stars in the sky and one of those stars, maybe it represents you as someone who is baptised in Christ, trusting in him for the forgiveness of your sins. Jesus, who has gone to prepare a mansion for you in heaven. Abraham was victorious in battle, but the Lord gave him that victory. We've seen that. Is it your conviction that you are not just a conqueror, but more than a conqueror through Christ Jesus, who loved you and who gave himself for you? In other words, do you believe that you have the victory, a God-given victory over sin, Satan and death, in Christ Jesus your Lord, who rose triumphant from the grave, having carried your sins away in his own body at the cross. And now, do you now follow Jesus and know him as your shield and your exceeding great reward?